clubhouse. My boy, uh, I had hoped we could speak again, but I don't have much time. There's so many things to say. But there's just one thing I need you to know. I am not the man I used to be. I'm not a killer anymore. Now whatever you hear, whoever tries to rattle your faith in me, what I am about to do is not about murder. No, this is about family. Everything I'm doing, everything I've done, it's all for you. For us. I hope you find me, son. You're the only one who can. Because we're the same. Welcome to The Surgeon Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I am Mike Caputo. I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing episode 10 of season 2, Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy was written by Eileen Jones and Alexis Siegel. Eileen Jones wrote Speak of the Devil from earlier this season, and Alexis Siegel wrote Internal Affairs from season 1. This was when Malcolm had a hallucination that revealed that Martin had tried to kill him as a kid and dug deep into the trauma and hallucinations Malcolm experiences. Tonight's episode was directed by Satya Baba, who previously directed The Job from season one. You'll recall that this episode, Malcolm hits his head really hard again and has another Martin hallucination where where Martin tells Malcolm how much they're alike. I, those are all very resonant uh, callbacks for tonight's episode, really for this back half, maybe actually the entire season. Malcolm is always getting severe brain trauma it seems on this job more more than maybe only football players are in you know uh, accumulating more head trauma than malcolm does in the uh, line of work that he has chosen here but there's this whole hallucination slash subconscious coming to the surface recurring theme this season uh a very chickens coming home to roost the idea that you can only keep the truth at bay, whether the truth is hidden deep down inside you, whether the truth is hidden over at Claremont, where, you know, wherever the truth is, you can only keep it submerged, whether it's in the never ever room, you can only keep it submerged for so long. The truth, like life, always finds a way. At the end of our discussion tonight, you guys, you should stick around because we actually have Bellamy Young finally joining us on the podcast. We've been trying to get Bellamy uh, all season long. We're super happy to have Jessica Whitley herself. Uh, so definitely stick around for that. With season two having wrapped filming just last week, we're looking forward to getting some really good stories from the set. Bellamy has been super active on social media recently. Uh, the whole cast was really doing like last day of school pictures and photos, you know, because they haven't been picked up yet so they're going into hiatus with no assurance on season three so it was a little bittersweet a little nervous a little nerve-wracking to watch the you know especially keiko again i don't know if you follow her on social media sheila but she was I doing do, yeah yeah she she put up a beautiful post you know i've enjoyed my time with adresa and i want to play her forever but if we don't and then she goes on to write a beautiful long tribute to this character that she's brought to life the last two seasons uh 
and, and the cast was filled with those kinds of anecdotes. Go find them on Instagram. Go find them on Twitter. Really beautiful community and just a great set of actors. At, at this point, we've interviewed more than half the cast and the creators of this uh, so far. Uh, across the board, just really solid human beings and a delight to work with. Uh, go check them out. And fingers crossed, you know, we're entering May. But, you know, renewals uh, renewals or not are coming soon. I'm hoping that we get some good news from Bellamy with this interview. How great would it be if the news of the season two renewal happened to be broken by Bellamy Young on the Surgeon Files podcast, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast? No, I'm sorry. We're dropping the unofficial. We have been named in the show. <laughs> I, I think legally, uh, I think we have to still say unofficially official, but you know, your headcanon woman is yours and I'm not going to tell you how, how to think about us. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we do get started, I would like for you to go check out our Spotify playlist that we've created. It's called The Surgeon Files by Pod Clubhouse, and it's a little bit of mood music from the show to keep you entertained as you wait the days in between our episodes. Let's get into tonight's episode. At the outset, I have to say, this episode had me on the edge of my seat. I had to remind my brain to breathe. This felt like a penultimate episode to a season. If you had told me this was the second to last episode of season two, I would have believed you with no reservations or hesitation. It wasn't action-packed. It was fast-paced and lots of stuff happening. You had to keep up. You have to watch this episode. If you've only watched this episode once this point you should go watch it it's not enough i've watched it two and a half times at this point and i still need to watch it more i know for sure i missed things that i have to go back and watch and you know i do this for a living and i'm sure i still miss things guys you got to watch this episode a lot of times pick it all up they were throwing a lot of stuff at us tonight what did you think sheila i agree i could barely breathe this entire episode all of this felt like a dance but they were dancing on a ledge it was very tense. There was a lot of, like you said, it wasn't action-packed, but the, the drama was high. There was just so much that they packed into each scene. There's callbacks to earlier in season one. There's just a lot of going on, and there's a big setup for the, the season finale. Like you said, if this was like a penultimate episode, yes, this was a setup for a season finale, but it'd be like, oh, we still have a few more to go. So I was really entertained this entire, this entire episode. I watched it three times, three and a half times probably and i will watch it again when it airs because there was so much nuance to be had in in the conversations malcolm has those quiet scenes they're just full of dialogue that malcolm has with gerald they're dropping major important character development things in that so if you're someone who watches prodigal son and you just watch for the overarching kind of plot points that they deliver and you and you kind of skim over the case of the week and i know there are people that are into that i know there are people that watch this just for the case of the week and they don't really care about the overarching theme tonight if you're not watching all of the parts of the episode you're missing out on important character based development and setup and setup that i think is going to play out over the course of the last three episodes of the season it felt like they were starting to set the table for the finale here which makes me so excited because we still have three hours left of the season. There's still three hours of Prodigal Sun left to go. My God, what what else? I mean, what else are they going to throw at us? I'll mention for the second week in a row, Sheila, no Ainsley. 
What do you mm. think that foretells for the final three episodes of the season? The the void of Ainsley, these last two, will definitely set up for something big and explosive from Ainsley. There, I said it. Meaning she's going to do something explosive or something is going to happen to her explosive? I think more that she's going to do something explosive. I feel that the, the intentionality of her not being in these episodes where so much is happening, that the spotlight will move to her. Uh, I think so. I think we're going to spend a lot of time with Malcolm, with Malcolm and Danny, with Malcolm, Danny, and the team finding Martin. And I think we're going to spend a lot of time with Ainsley because I suspect now the way tonight's episode played out, and this is my guess, and I've been pretty decent. I haven't gotten it... Before you go any further, I got to interrupt you. I got to give you major props. You predicted... To the letter of what happened tonight, what happened tonight. I think it was maybe our f- second episode of this podcast. So I got to give you major, major props. I should have done it at the outset, and I'm sorry. No, it's fine. You know, I, 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 you know, I felt pretty good all season long about what I was thinking, what I was feeling, what I was like the the subconscious vibes I was picking up from the show, and I, and and even as recently as last week, I was making predictions on how I thought this Martin. Not it was never a case of if it was only a case of when he got out of Claremont this season. It's the right time. So after thirty episodes now, it's the right time for him to step outside of Claremont and and see what that world is. Forever, how long that is it's the right time for that to happen so i felt really good about that i i didn't think it was going to happen this week i really thought it was going to happen the very end of next week to 11 or the very beginning of 212 that that was my guess my my gut feeling was the end of next week episode that's really when i thought it was actually going to come together i thought dr capshaw was going to play a role in him helping escape which she did but not willingly i mean she gives over the gold card accidentally to him trusting him that allows him to get that final swipe card that he's been chasing all season long. Uh, I love that they picked it up. I love that they zoomed in on it just to remind those Eagle Eye fans that have been keeping track of the swipe cards all season long. So I was right in so far as she was the one who enabled him to leave, but she didn't do it willingly like I had predicted in the Bonnie and Clyde. So, you know, I'm I'm shooting like half and half, but, you know, I I still feel really good about the predictions and I, I still, the overall feeling feels good. So where yeah. does where, where does Ainsley Ainsley come in? I feel like Ainsley is the one Martin is going to turn to because he can't get a hold of Malcolm. That was the setup feeling that I got tonight and would explain her absence the last two weeks and setting her up for a major arc in the finale of the season. Not for anything that with the way that season 1 ended I wasn't expecting Ainsley to have such a large part to play. So the fact that she's been absent these last two episodes makes me feel that there's a big setup for her for the end three episodes. Three episodes left, two? Uh, yeah, I mean, my understanding is it is there's three 13, episodes left. 13 episodes, right? Uh, right, yeah. so there's, there's so three more hours. May 4th, May 11th, and then the finale being May, May 18th. 18th. Right, yes. so then there's three more episodes, and the fact that Malcolm has effectively hung up on Martin for the last time leaves Ainsley as the only other person left. So this feels like a really good setup for something explosive to happen between the two of them. And I agree wholeheartedly, and I'll piggyback on that, really organic to 
the storyline. Really, it's it's a natural stepping stone for the relationship that they have been slow burning Ainsley and Martin having since the beginning of the show, going back into season one, since she did, you know, the interview inside uh, the Claremont, inside his cell in Claremont. Everything she went through this season, the, the last time we really saw her in a significant way was throwing the pig's blood. Yes, I know she was then in the next episode with Hoxley, but she didn't really play a major role in that. She was a significant role in, you know, revealing, putting putting Malcolm through the ringer in uh, face value. Yeah, I, I, it all makes sense that she's going to come back with a roar and keeping her on the sidelines, keeping her on the bench. I mean, Adresa was in this episode tonight and no Ainsley. You know what I mean? So it, it, they had the entire family, the entire cast was in tonight's episode, but no Ainsley, which makes her absence very conspicuous. The only reason I can think for that is that she comes back with a major roar. And what more major roar than to help, you know, dear old dad be on the lamb. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, more no nos. We still had no sunshine this week. I feel like we got we got teased a little sunshine uh, a couple times this season. Uh, I, I need more sunshine, guys. Chris, Sam, if you guys are listening, I, I think you're listening. You know, give us more sunshine. Just a little tweet. I don't even need to see. That's it. Just the sound. I just tweet. Yeah, yeah, I just. Need, I mean, we were in the apartment at the start of this episode. A, a little, a little look from Jessica. A little Malcolm stares at uh, sunshine and tells him, you know, can you believe what Jessica's doing here? Going into the next Ever room, something just give me a little sunshine tweet tweet like you said doesn't have to be on camera don't even give the cred you know <laughs> yeah it could be an under five kind of thing i don't need to hear you know under five like a silent role just you know, i i want sunshine to have sag health insurance i want him to be able to keep mm-hmm. his his sag card uh and uh you know i just want to hear a little tweet tweet i want to know that there's someone in malcolm's life keeping him emotional company and no daily affirmation and i think the daily affirmations always serve as a nice framing for the episode whether or not and i don't even think they always pan out as a good theme for the episode but it's always interesting to do the thought experiment of how the daily affirmations apply to the episode. So I missed those tonight. Uh, just in talking about tonight's episode, so I did some research on agoraphobia. I've got some feelings about how agoraphobia was handled tonight. <laughs> so the Mayo Clinic defines agoraphobia as a type of anxiety disorder where you fear and avoid places or situations that might cause you to panic, might make you feel trapped, helpless, and or embarrassed. You fear... An actual or an anticipated situation, such as using something like public transportation or being in an open or enclosed space, standing in line or being in a crowd. So the anxiety is caused by a fear that there's no easy way for you to escape or to get help if the anxiety intensifies. And most people who have agoraphobia develop it after one or more of these panic attacks causes them to worry about having another attack and therefore the avoidance of the place becomes a habit. I feel like I've become a little agoraphobic since March of 2020, but... (laughs) Yeah, so there's so much of Gerald that I identified. I was like, yeah, I do the kind of same kind of thing. I, I mean, I go out, but I don't go out willingly still. I mean, I, I have been changed by the pandemic. You know, I get to work from home. Uh, if not for the fact I pick up my son every day from school, that's really a lot of times the only time I go out during the week. Oh my God. You and I are living the same life. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and you know what? I'm okay with that. And, and, and I'm okay this way. And, and, but I have stopped and I have done and I've thought about 
about it. You're like, am, am I actually changed? Like, will when when, you know, I'm, I'm actually getting my second vaccine dose later this week. Will I resume life out in the public? I don't know. I think so. I think so. But it's going to be it's going to be like a thought exercise. It's going to be me having to be like, all right, put on your shoes. Yep. No. Oh, wait. You got to put on pants. 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 You got to put on pants or yes. shorts. And you got to throw in some flip flops. You got to have some kind of footwear. There's right. tetanus out on the street. You can't go out barefoot. Uh, put right. a hat no on. Pants, no pants, no shoes, no service. You know, you, you, you've got anime style hair now, Michael. You got to put on a hat or do something with your wig. You know, like you got to do something like people are going to see you and judge you. They don't, you don't, don't scare them. Yeah. So there's a lot of that that's going to happen for sure. So I think we're all living in a little bit of agoraphobic world right now, but I, was happy that Malcolm went to bat for Gerald in this episode and made clear that uh, agoraphobia is not a weird thing. It's not an oddball thing. It doesn't make him a freak. And went to bat for his mind and said, you know, in so many ways, he's the best witness we could ever hope for. He's got an eidetic memory. And and I got to tell you, I was a little dismayed. I was a little put off about how flip the team was. I expect the J, I expect JT to be like, you know, that kind of you know thing. I was a little put off by Gil and Danny throwing shade on Gerald as being like a functioning member of society. I did not like it. I did not like it. It, it felt off to me and it felt it felt malicious in a way those two characters are never ever malicious but hopefully but luckily we didn't spend a lot of time with them you know we got down to it really just being malcolm and gerald mostly what what did you think of how they handled the agora for me what did you think of gerald as a character i thought gerald was almost like a kindred soul to malcolm in a way because they they bonded over chess and they they just had this symbiosis between them it was almost like the chess was a way for them to bring out the, the trust factor in each other because Malcolm Malcolm brought his credibility by saying that you know he knows you know he knows how to play chess and then Gerald brought his credibility with all of the evidence that he could show that you know he understood the neighborhood and he understand the connection between Rosalie there was a lot of connection going on between these two I I agree I did not like the the, I'm going to go out and say it was like mental health shaming of, of agoraphobia, discounting him as anyone who could be taken credibly because he suffers from this this type of mental illness. I mean, there's, there's plenty of people walking around with far worse things than agoraphobia um, that would make them far less reliable. Um, so I was surprised that the tone that Gil and Danny took in particular was that. But um, the fact that Malcolm stood up for him was was the redemption for me. So I, I liked who Gerald was. I liked I liked the growth that Malcolm brought out in him, even if it was under extreme duress. But he trusted Malcolm enough to go along with this crazy ride. Uh, especially in a post-COVID world in which in in which Prodigal Son takes place, you have to imagine if you did a survey, there's going to be more agoraphobic people in the world statistically now than there w- was say in April of 2019 versus you know 2021. Yeah, it, but even when you add that to like the show takes place post-COVID, I, I, yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't like it, but I really did like Gerald, and I liked how he opened up Malcolm. Before we get into Malcolm and his arc this episode, hit me up with our murder tally. What did the murder weapon tally look like tonight? I liked this murder tally this week. Um, so we have some murder and attempted murder tally. So the the murder weapon tally is a, I clocked in a decorative crystal, 
And I got some attempted murder by Dodge Coronet and uh, Laboutins. Actually, I'm going to wager I think those were actually Tom Ford's shoes that Jessica used. But uh, very spectacular uses of some attempted murder weapons tonight. The only reason I didn't think they were Laboutins is because they actually didn't have the signature red sole. So that's why I think they're yeah, that Yeah, that's what I look for also uh, in uh, Laboutins. Interesting. Let's let's talk about the title real quick. Tonight's episode was Exit Strategy. And, you know, for some reason, I thought there was going to be some kind of chess metaphor in there. So I went looking up to see. I went to Dr. Google and I went and I looked up what like Exit Strategy stands for. And it does not appear to be a chess term. So I just looked at the regular definition that Merriam-Webster has. Merriam-Webster defines Exit Strategy as a plan for ending involvement, which is interesting, which is an interesting way to describe escaping prison. So it makes me think what involvements are being ended tonight besides martin's involvement with being at claremont you know is it (laughs) is is this the end of him and uh is this the end of him and vivian is this the end of malcolm and martin is this going to be the end of of malcolm and danny before it even gets started i i don't know any any thoughts on uh on on that well definitely martin and vivian are history that is that is a past tense thing after tonight for sure oh i don't know that it's black and white done i i don't feel that way actually at all i I see where you're coming from there but i don't i think they are two broken people and broken people never stay away from the each other for long i I have strong opinions but um no i i I don't know i I, um i well malcolm and martin they they do this dance every once in a while where malcolm needs to like preserve his mental sanity and takes a step back from martin since the show's inception they do this dance malcolm dances away something brings him back to martin i feel martin busting out of prison is going to definitely get malcolm involved again so i don't think that exit strategy is martin and malcolm maybe malcolm and danny i hope not because I'm still shipping them pretty hard. Let's uh, let's talk about Malcolm and Martin because Malcolm is on a Martin cleanse this episode. Why do you think that is? He didn't really have too much interaction with his dad last episode other than having several subconscious hallucinations about him. So w- why do you think he's on the Martin cleanse in this episode? I think it's because of the hallucinations that the last episode out where Martin was really in his head and directing the narrative almost. I think Malcolm really decided that he needs to to take a break from this because he, he's too much caught up in the, in the narrative of a serial killer in his brain and it's having unintended consequences. He he was very close to potentially doing something with Danny to move their relationship onward and he slipped up and Martin went whoopsie. Like, you know, she's a detective. You really think she's going to let that go? I'm not surprised that he's doing a cleanse because, uh, you know, I, I went back and, you know, investigated the the writer and the director for this episode to see where where we're at with these two. They both come from a point where Malcolm is having Martin in his head and digging deep into the trauma and hallucinations that Martin has caused. So it's not surprising to me that this is the theme that this episode is taking on, that he needs to get him out of his head. Like when you have a dream and you become angry at the person in the dream and then you wake up and you're actually angry or at, at them in real life or blaming them for the thing that happened in the dream. I I feel like Malcolm tonight is on this Martin cleanse because of 
Martin, subconscious Martin, standing in or being the manifestation of his subconscious and, and, and trying to get him to open up to Danny and pushing him and, and making him try to face truths that he doesn't want to face or deal with. He's almost holding Martin accountable for that. Like real life Martin is being held accountable for what his subconscious is doing to him. I happens to be frequently where I wake up and if I've had a bad dream or some kind of dream where I, you know, I, I wake up sour at the person in the dream, even though I, I understand that it, they were not in my, they are not Freddy Krueger in my dream. But yeah, so that, that, that was my thinking on it. That routinely happens to me. My husband wakes up in a bad mood. I'm like, what did I do in your dream now? So <laughs> I may ask you, were you surprised that A, that Gerald was able to so easily profile Malcolm's feelings for Danny and B, that Malcolm came clean to Gerald about how he feels? <sighs> No, I mean, uh, setting up that Gerald is a, a chess master and, and setting the table for us that he was the kind of player that knew his opponent. Uh, and, and, and I don't know if you guys, if you like watched Queen's Gambit, uh, on Netflix, great show. So it, great. Uh, and you know, one of the things that Beth and, and all the other high level players do in that show is they really psychologically profile the player as much as their moves. They really have an understanding of who the person is. So it, it, it seems natural to me that Gerald and Chess being the metaphor, uh, with these two, uh, Malcolm being a profiler, but Gerald also being a profiler in, in a way would, would be analyzing each other. So it, it didn't, it didn't. It didn't surprise me that he picked up on Malcolm's feelings for Danny. He he was catching all of the body language hints and and the the vocal hints. It did surprise me a little bit that Malcolm came clean to him so easy. He didn't really try to obfuscate. He didn't really try to put up with it uh, or or dodge the question. You know, and and maybe he was doing that because who was Gerald going to tell? He's an agoraphobic. You know, is he was he going to you know he's going to tell his pillow? You know, so maybe he felt like as it was as safe a space as could be to actually admit feelings to himself that he probably hasn't said out loud. I mean, he's only really had conversations with his subconscious or subconscious Martin about his feelings for Danny. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was a little surprised by it, but I was happy to see that that Malcolm would take that leap of faith though and actually say there's something very cathartic about talking about your feelings out loud whether it's in therapy whether it's to a stranger there's a great episode of your honor the brian cranston limited series that ran on showtime uh he goes to uh someone's house he's he's stalking he's stalking someone for information and he comes across an old man with dementia he tells this man his entire life story and all of the woes that are weighing him down because he can't say it to anyone else given the storyline of the show and i remember i was covering the show with caroline and i remember talking about it there it was it's cathartic being able to say out loud all the things that are wrong and 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 just be able to unburden yourself by talking about it is helpful. And when you can say it to someone that's not going to that's going to be a true vault for what you say, that's a really, really safe space to be vulnerable. So I think that's what Malcolm is picking up on there. What do you think? I was surprised in a way that Malcolm opened up so quickly, but I also, you know, come back to this notion that they're kind of kindred spirits. They're kind of oddballs. They kind of don't fit in in a crowd of people. There's a symbiosis between them. And in a way, like you said, about being Gerald, rather being a chess master, having to, in a way, profile his opponents made him almost the perfect 
person to unburden himself about Danny. And like you said, there is catharsis in unloading what is in your mind, what's you know burdening your heart. Gerald is about as judgment-free as Malcolm can get in his life. He can't talk to his therapist because other things could come out that could incriminate him. Although Malcolm, I think, has enough walls up that he can effectively keep a lot of this down. But he was so easily slipping up in front of Danny last episode by saying Nicholas instead of Natalie. But I think Gerald is a very safe space for him to let some of that fly and and to take maybe some of that for a test drive and just see how it sounds out loud. I thought this was a really interesting friendship that developed between them. And some part of me was like, maybe Gerald becomes like Malcolm's friend because they're a lot alike in a lot of ways. You know, Malcolm being out of therapy uh, this entire season, and that was a plot point brought up uh, earlier on in the season that he hasn't been going to therapy. You know, Gerald fills that role, but does it in a friendship kind of way? I, I agree with you. I hope I, I hope we get to see this character more. He's not only an interesting person for Malcolm to be able to communicate free, freely with, he is an interesting character because he has a very nimble brain that is large and, and can break down complex thoughts and theories. He's got a brain to rival a Malcolm or a Martin, but without any of the serial killerness of it. You know, and that's an interesting that kind of white hat brain is is a useful tool for Malcolm to be able to turn to. You know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Gerald Morris come back again a little bit. And Malcolm also is a is a good sounding board for Gerald. He did not lay any judgment about Gerald's agoraphobia. There was a funny line where you know Gerald starts to say that he hasn't been out since March, and Malcolm kind of gives him this look like, yeah, the rest of us haven't been out since March either. He goes of ninety seven. Oh, but Malcolm did not judge him. He was just like, oh, okay, so you have agoraphobia. Like it was an acceptance thing. So I liked how Malcolm handled Gerald. And I think that led to this deepening trust between these two. At the end of the episode, if not for finding out about Martin's escape and getting the voicemail and then Danny coming and telling him, confirming what seemed to be his worst fear. Do you think Malcolm was really going to live up to his side of his agreement with Gerald? Do you think he was really going to tell Danny that he has feelings for her? I don't think so. I don't think that he's he's there. I think he's still in this mindset that for whatever reason, he's protecting her. And I don't know what exactly he's protecting her from. Is it just his own truth about Nicholas Endicott? I don't know. But I don't think that he was actually going to to tell her. I do because because of the trust that Gerald put in Malcolm. I, If nothing else, I feel like Malcolm would have felt a need to reciprocate and demonstrate that that was well-earned trust in Malcolm that Gerald put. Because Gerald's sitting right there. It's not like he said, I'm going to go tell her later tonight or something. You know, no, so he I was know, putting himself that, a little yeah. bit on the spot. So, you know, I, I think it was more a little deuce ec machina that the Martin thing came up, uh, allowing him to not have to actually do that, which probably is the more comfortable spot for him to be in. But I think if not that, if, if we're moving into the multiverse, Prodigal Son multiverse, I think he does. I think he does tell her or at least says something like we need to, you know, can can I come over tonight or can you come over tonight? I, I need to I want to talk to you. He does some significant step moving towards being honest with her uh, and I'm not saying about Nicholas, just saying purely the romantic aspect of it. I want it to happen, but I'm just I'm so skeptical because he has this deep seated protection for her safety. And that's why he's not coming clean with her. When it's so obvious to everybody, complete strangers are picking up on all the cl- all the clues that he's sending off. 
Yeah. So as much as Malcolm was involved in this episode and he was, you know, on screen a lot, I think plot wise and character development wise, those were the big things. I think most of the action and most of the talking points that we need to cover tonight really happened over at Claremont. So let's move over to our Claremont crew. I want to start with something from the end of the episode, because I think this this becomes Martin's entire reason for what he's doing. And I, I need to talk about it because I don't know that I fully understand it. So let's listen to this clip and then break it down. Boy, um, I had hope we could speak again, but I don't have much time. There's so many things to say. But there's just one thing I need you to know. I am not the man I used to be. I'm not a killer anymore. And whatever you hear, whoever tries to rattle your faith in me, what I am about to do is not about murder. No, this is about family. Everything I'm doing, everything I've done, it's all for you. For us. I hope you find me, son. You're the only one who can. Because we're the same. All right, there's two parts to this that we need to break down. Let's talk about the first one, this idea that it's not about murder, it's about family. Now, go back to episode two of season two, and when he first comes up with this idea at the end and he's standing on the on the line with Friar Pete in front of him, he's all a tither because Malcolm is in a, in a tailspin about covering up Endicott's murder. Martin gets it in his head that he needs to get out of there because he needs to go help uh, Malcolm. He needs to be there for his family. That was the original reason for him wanting to escape Claremont, or that was the original stated reason for wanting to escape Claremont beyond just not wanting to be in Claremont. But they've resolved the Endicott affair. They've gotten away with it, presumably. What is your take on this for family? What family is he rushing to try and save here in his mind? I still think it's Malcolm. He needs to get uninterrupted time with Malcolm. Because Malcolm can so easily just cut him out. And I think Martin needs to get this FaceTime with Malcolm in order to resolve some of the issues so that this way him and Malcolm have this better, this more concrete, this more trusting relationship. Because it's it's very much one-sided. Malcolm has all the power. And if Mar- I think in Martin's mind, if he's close to Malcolm in proximity that he will have the a better opportunity to explain himself to to reunite with his family i think that scene that Malcolm had in when he was in the elevator shaft where like the 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 family's all together i think that's martin's ultimate ideal that he's he's reunited cuz martin's even his own fantasy was uh, early on this season too was that he he borrows out of claremont into jessica's living room and she's waiting with a, a martini for him so i I think in his mind, that's where he's going back to. But I think it's ultimately for Malcolm. I think you've hit on something there about needing FaceTime with Malcolm. It's for Malcolm, though he may say it's because he needs to help Malcolm. I think it's more about, and I'm uh, I'm thinking back to Malcolm when he was in his father's cell. He had been wrestling with, is he becoming the surgeon? Is he becoming, is he, is he slipping into this darkness and becoming his father? And he has this great conversation with Martin where he says, I've, I'm accepting that you're my father. 
father and I'm your son. And Martin is like, my boy. And then Malcolm's like, no, 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 don't get me wrong. That's bad for you because what now that I understand who I am and who you are in my life, I can cut you out of it. Almost like I can identify the cancer, which is Jessica's example in this episode. And, and because now that I have identified the scope of the cancer, I can excise it out. I think that really, really fucked with Martin. That was, that's in episode two. That's what leads him to becoming almost anxiety ridden with Friar Pete that he needs to get out of Claremont. It's that he has to get in front of Malcolm physically so mm-hmm. that Malcolm physic can't actually cut him out because he will be there. You know, so I think it's less about actually Malcolm. I think it's more about Martin's ego vis-a-vis Malcolm needing him and not letting Malcolm cut him out the way he did in this episode. I mean, Malcolm Martin is never more anxiety ridden than when he can't get a hold of Malcolm because he feels Malcolm is is dodging him like he did in this episode, yelling at Mr. David about the phones not working, yeah. skipping it out, try I mean you're escaping from prison and you're stopping to make vo- you know phone calls to your son. Like he doesn't handle that anxiety with Malcolm well at all. And I think that's all ego. You know, it's very interesting. Tonight, um, we rewatched the pilot just because we just had questions about it. And Malcolm says in the episode, you're afraid of me. He says this to Martin when he's trying to deduce which of the his former patients is the one that's m- mimicking his crimes. And he goes, you're afraid of me, aren't you? And Martin is not okay with this question. So there's this very interesting power dynamic between them. And I think Malcolm is the only person in Martin's life that has power over him. And he just needs to resolve that by, by literally getting in front of him. The second part of that voicemail is more logistical and is more prognosticating for the future. He says, I hope you find me, son. You're the only one you can. And the voicemail shifts from being a voicemail to Martin in Claremont. And, and, and you can hear it in the clip that we played, but obviously on screen, it goes from being a voice in Malcolm's ear. It, the camera shifts to being in front of Martin, leaving the message. And he says to, to deliver the final line, because we're the same. So this is clearly a clue as to where Martin is headed that only Malcolm will know or understand that message. Because that's a message that is going to be played for Gil. It's going to be played for major crimes. It's going to be played for the news. M- Martin has to understand that that voice voicemail is going to get out so he's delivering a clue that only malcolm will be able to decipher or he has to at least assume that that voicemail is going to be heard by other people so he's leaving a clue that only malcolm can decipher i'm curious where you think that might be leading i have my own thoughts but i want to hear what you have uh first before i give mine Hmm. i mean there's literally like malcolm's whole childhood that you know that can be part of and Malcolm was able to, in season one, string together so many clues about the girl in the box and retrace so many steps. It might be that weird cabin in the woods from way back when. I agree. That's one place, obviously, because that is the the going in with the junkyard killer in going out into the woods where Martin was going to kill Malcolm, we learned later on, and, and take care of the girl in the box. Uh, definitely a, a place that Malcolm uh, would know and think of that maybe other people wouldn't, though they did discover that location. Remember, the team went out there and it turned out to be a dry hole. Remember, uh, right, it turned out right. not and actually not to be where Malcolm was being held um, by the junkyard killer. So that place has been blown. People know about that place. Now, I can't remember if Martin knows that people know about that place, but that was that was my first thought. But then I started thinking, well, why did the camera shift from being a voicemail in Malcolm's ear 
to Martin saying it into the camera. Only thing I can think of, and maybe and it's obvious probably maybe to people listening, is the we're the same is the very famous to me anyway line that Martin says when he's on his knees in front of young Malcolm way back in 1998, before the cops drag him away, he reminds him, because, son, we're the same. And so as being a catchphrase and hearing Martin deliver that in his voice in front of him versus through a recording made me think that Malcolm will understand Martin is going to the house to where it all literally began, where Malcolm's trauma literally began when watching his father get hauled away because of what he did. And there's some poetic justice there too, because Martin has had a little burr up his ass all season long about Malcolm being the one to turn him into the police. There's some poetic justice. There's some irony there. There's some nice book ending there that, that that's a code for Martin returning to the house. Damn. So, you mean him and Ainsley are going to be sitting at the same desk? Like Benson and Stabler style across from each other? Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple clues there. One, there's the, there's the line in the foyer, we're the same, and that's the yeah. line tonight. That's a big clue line for me that, that indicates the house. You do have the escape uh, fantasy that he had early in her season where he comes through a tunnel in through the basement, through his old office where Ainsley has taken up residence as her office, uh, back to the house. That house, Stately Whitley Manor, is the beacon, I think. It is the, is the homing pigeon beacon for Martin. As obvious a place as that is, who knows what hidey holes he carved in there that uh, that we don't know about. They only discovered that his office was down there last season. Yep. Very late in the season, too. I'll give you that. Yeah. And so who knows what kind of hidey holes he, he set up for himself in a rainy day, you know, escape plan-wise, exit strategy-wise, to use tonight's episode. So, and then where was he holding Sophie? I couldn't remember that. Sophie, the girl in the box. Where, where did he... Ha- was it that at the cabin? The the girl in the box when, like, Malcolm would go up and he got chloroformed by Martin? No, when... Because that when was all he, in the basement. That was all outside of his office. That was all in the basement. That, okay. was in the, that was in the basement. That was all part of Malcolm's, uh, Martin's office in the basement of Stately Whitley Manor. When, so when Sophie was telling Martin about that she works for Endicott and all that stuff, that was all in the basement? Oh, uh, that I don't know. I can't remember where that... That I feel like maybe that was in the woods. That might have been off-site. I'm talking about when he was, like, physically oh, holding physically, her yeah, the, yeah, the box, the box. The, box the, 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 the actual basement. box yeah. that Malcolm came upon yeah. and, had, and had blocked out and we slowly learned about that was all in the basement of stately there's there's possibly another cavern to that um that hidey hole that we just don't know about so i i like that i mean it's definitely in keeping with the the braininess of the show that they would have some sort of trail back to to stately whitley manor for martin his triumphant return there's something so deliciously circular about it it's Mm -hmm. from whence we came we return and and i and i think there's a lot of poetry there that uh is right in this show's wheelhouse to do and also in in the psyche and brain that martin has also i think i think there's a lot of significance there to return there because that's where it all began in so many ways you know you just mentioned something being circular and we actually had a reference to ouroboros again tonight uh daryl did you catch this daryl had uh the head of the snake the head of the snake i was like ouroboros and then woolly bully started in my head (laughs) oh lord Oh, Lord. I, yes, I thought it was really significant that they mentioned the head of the, that Martin is the head of the snake. You know, it's another instance of, you know, Endicott was the head of the snake. Then Natalie was the head of the snake. And now Martin is the head of the snake. You know, you know this, you know the thing that Endicott and Natalie have in common? 
they're dead. I was going to say, they dead? <laughs> they dead. And so, I, you know, being the head of the snake hasn't worked out in the long run for people on the show. So I'm a little worried, actually. I, after hearing that, I'm a little worried that Martin is the head of the snake, if that's true. I mean, I was a little surprised that Friar Pete and Hector were so faithful to waiting for him. He, they had plenty of chances to leave him behind. They were free. They were scot-free. They could have gone, but they waited for Martin several times when they didn't have to. I don't know how long Friar Pete, he's a psychopath. I don't know how long he continues to wait for Martin. You know, maybe he decides that he could be the head of the snake and tries to take out Martin. And also just the company that Martin's keeping right now, you know, they just can't be trusted. They're all in Claremont for a similar reason. So, you know, you can't really trust your company too good either. Uh, let's play amateur psychologist. What's the significance of Vivian's dream that opens this episode? Not only no. not only being a little a little fangirlish in looking for Martin's approval, but also the fact that she ends up being the patient that Vivian is working on. What what did, what did these things tell to you? I mean, I was laughing because like my, the first thing that popped in my head was like her ego's writing checks that her body can't cash. You know, to quote that or paraphrase that great Top Gun line. She's seeking Martin's approval and validation, and you know, when he calls her brilliant surgeon, and she's like, "Yes, I'm brilliant." And when she gives into that, that's when you, all of a sudden the beeping on the table, and you see the patient her seizing. So the fact that she is subconsciously having a very Malcolm-like dream about Martin was very disturbing, but it also brought home for me a lot of the problems that I was having with Dr. Capshaw to this point where she was giving up some information on her on herself to Martin last episode about her being reckless and not being able to play in the same boys club due to that recklessness this really drove home some of that that she she is at her core very vulnerable very insecure about herself and she needs this validation and she's finding it from somebody who is at his core, a narcissistic sociopath. So he knows how to flatter, but she's overlooking that because in her dream, he's giving her exactly what she needs. And she's, you know, she even says, don't butter me up. But meanwhile, her eyes, she's deliciously drinking in all of these compliments. Yeah. I mean, not just in her dream too, but in reality, you know, he, she's, she is taking and, you know, lock, stock and barrel, everything Martin is saying to her. And we need to talk about the sincerity of that from Martin's side. But let's stick with Vivian here for a second. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think she comes off as being... Uh, despite all of her protestations that she is the one in control, which is how or what her attitude has been this entire arc so far, so far for her tonight, I think that dream really revealed that in fact she is actually extremely submissive, that she is desperate for his approval in a mentor from a mentor point of view, which unfortunately lulls her into this position where she gives up all of her power. When she unshackles him, his eyes go wide like the devil. Oh, I froze on that that moment because I was just like, what is this? What is this face telling me? I mean, that's a gift like when a Taco Bell got rid of Mexican pizza. Like that's a gift that I want to make for myself because the the <laughs> eye flash that he has there, it's insane. It's wild eye. That's how I feel hearing the the drive-through woman tell me that there's no Mexican pizzas anymore at Taco Bell. I'm going to fucking rip shit apart. Uh, you know, Mike Smash. Like don't tell me that. Like the the feral animal being freed from the cage. Really great acting on Michael Sheen's part. Absolutely. Oh my God, that was great. Again, so I have problems with Dr. Capshaw and her her judgment. Um, 
and this episode notwithstanding. So why do you think Dr. Capture would make her emergency call from the boiler room where she is alone with Fire Pete, who is now aware that she knows about him? And there's just there's so many opportunities for her to do this in a different setting. Why do you think that this was what she did? Well, because she's reckless. I mean, she's reckless. I think this is a great example of her being reckless. She is impulsive. She should have. She should have not followed a a, uh, a an inmate into a darkened boiler room esque kind of place. Though, to be fair, I mean, she opens up a great can of whoop ass. She puts Friar Pete on his ass. You know, lickety split. The problem is Friar Pete. You know, threatens her with blackmail, which is that's the only thing that really slows her up. But I agree with you. Why are you going in there? You know, it's like I'm sitting in the movie theater and someone opens up a door, you know, obviously uh, where a serial, where a murderer is. I'm yelling at the screen, like, you know, like, what are you doing? Don't go in there. Like, are you stupid? Like, don't go in there. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, I was doing that to my screen. Like, girl, what are you doing? Lord. So, yeah. No, I think that was, I think that's just, again, the show doing a great job of showing us her being reckless after telling us from her own, in her own words, that that is a problem she knows she has the show without having to repeat the words was showing us those actions so i thought that was actually a really good character consistent character development i i think a big question that is going to come out of tonight's episode is people asking did martin really care for vivian this entire time or was he just playing the long con to try and get that gold card swipe uh, that gold swipe card the entire time uh i want to play this clip uh, and this again plays into his reasons for leaving, but it also sheds a little bit of light on is he being sincere or not this entire time. Martin, what are you doing? Martin, where are you going? Martin, stop! Martin, stop! What are you doing? I'm sorry, I am. It's not easy for me to leave all this behind. No, please, don't. No, don't go. Family comes first. No, Martin, stop! Please stop! Stop! Holy shit. I mean, great acting in this entire episode by Michael Sheen and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Their entire arc together, I think, has been fantastic and really sizzled with great chemistry. That was a really heartbreaking scene for me. She sounds so devastated, so, so betrayed that she allowed herself to be hoodwinked in that. Like, she can't fathom it. She's watching him and is like, no, no, you're going the wrong way. Like, she's so slow on the uptake, but in a believable kind of way because she has fallen for him so hard so fast. So question one, what did you take of her reaction there? The the pleading desperation in her voice. And two, is Martin being sincere when he says, I can't tell you how hard it is for me to walk away from this, but family first. Her reaction, I felt was really genuine. I do feel that she felt betrayed. I felt you know, you said hoodwinked. I was like, yes. It's like she really felt duped because she was even like, no, 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 the storeroom's that way. Like not even registering what he was capable of now that she had unhooked him. She thought she they were a team. I, they yep. were they were a Bonnie and Clyde on the right side of the law. She really thought. Yeah, she, they were on the right side of medicine at this point. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I think her the desperation that she has in her voice when her voice cracks in those two moments where she's 
absolutely desperate. I feel on one side, she knows that, you know, she's been duped by someone who's much more savvy than she is. And also that her own, I think this is like her own reckoning with her own recklessness. That's not easy to say. Her reckoning with her recklessness. Wow. That's, that's poetry right there. But this is where her judgment will be called in front of the police. It will be called in front of, she's going to lose her medical license for this. Even though it was an emergency, she is going to lose her medical license. And I feel that all of this is playing out through her head. Not only on the left side of her brain has she been romantically duped by this person that she gave her heart to and she opened up to, and I don't think that's something that she does lightly, but on the right side of her brain, she's also now in this position where she has facilitated the escape of three very, very dangerous people. And I think all, I think we've just seen all of this play out in about seven or eight seconds. And I think it was really masterful on her point. And to answer the second part of your question, I feel that Martin was playing her this whole time. He is a narcissistic sociopath as diagnosed by his son multiple times in this show. And narcissistic sociopaths think it's okay to use and exploit people in whatever way they need to help them get ahead. And I feel that this was just Martin's long game. You called it in episode two of the season that his plan is Exodus. And I feel that all of now looking back on these eight episodes since then, that his long game has been all of the steps that he needs to do in order to get into this position. And Dr. Capshaw had the gold card, which he learned from the Dr. Potts episode that the medical staff have gold cards. He turns on the charm and I've, I've likened him to Ted Bundy a number of times, even, you know, Sam and Chris were like, Hey, that's not that far off from who he actually is. So I feel, unfortunately, as much as I want to believe that their chemistry was real, I feel that Martin just turned on his charm and fabricated all of this in order to get out of Claremont. I think he was sincere up to the point where it was convenient for him, which maybe is not sincere at all then. I think he generally, I think he liked her. I think he was impressed with her brain. He sees something in her, maybe sees a mentee in her, but I think overall, he, she was a mark he could work his magic on in a lot of ways. There were some micro expressions there that you can't fake that you wouldn't fake just if you're doing the long con. I'm thinking when he growls at Huxley to that he's being rude to Vivian and she's not in the room or or at least not within earshot of him. That that's a growl Martin reserves for loved ones. I think that's not something that you fake. The way he like tries to lick down his hair, his wild hair that she can't see that, but he knows that she he's going to see her and he does it in such a boyish way. Now, it may just be Michael Sheen uh and and, and the adorable sincerity with which he brings to life these roles. Um but I think there I think there is undeniable aspects of his relationship with Vivian that were real, but push come the shove, I think she measures nowhere near more significant than Malcolm. Uh, maybe if it was Jessica, but no, no, I even think Jessica, I think, I think he chooses Vivian over everyone other than Malcolm, Jessica and, and Ainsley, you know, so sincere to a point is my feeling. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like Dr. Capshaw was just a pawn, not to use the chess, you know, reference lightly. She was a pawn in his, um, his great escape. But I do, th- I do agree that there was some, 
level of, I can't say, there was some level of connection between Martin and Vivian because he, like he said, you said, there are these micro expressions and he did say, I'm sorry. He had to have felt something as a sociopath, as a psychopath, what, you know, because he has tendencies of both in order for him to even acknowledge that that is something that he should feel. So there is some, there is some remorse there. So I, I will I will give him that. I will give, you know, that statement to you by saying that there is something to it, but I think the long game for him was she was she was a mark and she was someone that could be used and manipulated to his ultimate end goal. I, I think Martin has made great strides in improving his EQ over the course of this show through his contact with Malcolm, through being involved with the cases, through watching what his children are going through, what Malcolm goes through with his job and being able to assist him. So I think I think there's a level of him now that has an emotional quotient to care for someone other than himself to care for someone like Dr. Capshaw, but not enough to override his own narcissism and his own selfishness in the same way. I believe that he believes he's telling the truth in the voicemail to Malcolm, that it's not about murder, that it's about family, that it's that I am not the monster that people are going to try and say that I am not anymore, you know, because there is improvement there. There is growth. He has regenerated those nerve endings to a certain degree, but not nearly enough to make him a functioning member of society. It will turn into murder faster than not. Oh, I, I feel that murder, murder is definitely going to be a byproduct of this uh, of this bust out. Though I, I will say, I think, and check me if I'm wrong, and listeners, let me know if I'm wrong. I think to this point, we have not seen Martin actually murder anyone other than his attempted murder of Jer Bear in in uh, early in the season, but in and in fact ended up curing Jer Bear. I'm going to still say that Jerry Bear was not a target that Martin has changed. I will I will agree with his statement because he could have killed him, but he didn't. Oh, I think he tried to kill. I still think he tried to kill him for for his Migs like offense at throwing a shoe at, at Malcolm. I, I want to move on because we are running long and I want to wrap this up so we can get to Bellamy's interview. But I need to ask you when Jessica shows up and she's asking him about the secret bank key or, or to cough up his secret. He starts laying out all of the clues that if you knew what was happening, you'd see he was laying out all of the parts of the plan. He made it pretty obvious if you are inclined to look, or in 2020 hindsight, you'll be able to see he was laying out all of the clues for Jessica to figure out that he was escaping the prison, which she does, and she calls Gil and, you know, and 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 gets Gil on the case. Is there some part of, of Martin that wants to be caught? Remember, he also pauses right at the doorway before taking that final step and escaping for good. He pauses. Yes, he takes a deep breath, and so maybe that's what it was about, but there's also a pause there. He pauses to call Ma- Malcolm one more time and leave a voicemail when the clock is ticking on escape. He lays out these clues. Is there a part of Martin that wanted to get caught, do you think? I was trying to figure this out. He, he, he lays out so perfectly for Jessica and, and was laughing because I was laughing at, at a certain part when he was saying that I'm just a rat in a cage. What could I be, you know, contemplating? And I'm like, why is it Smashing Pumpkins, you know, Bullet with Butterfly Wings not playing in the background? But however, I, I'm going to wager that we only get the screeners version. So I, I think that's in the final product. But um, I, I think I, Smashing Pumpkins is too expensive to license. Probably. 
yeah, I was trying to figure out why he was laying all of this out. And he was like sing-songy with her and, and almost baiting her into figuring this out. And I think that she was just so jarred by encountering Dr. Capshaw in there with him. And, and they were very close. So I think that she was a little bit slow on the uptake, but she figures it out eventually. I don't know. I don't know if it was him. Be, it might be him being a little agoraphobic, believe it or not. He's been in there for 23, 24 years almost, or 23, 23 years. So he might have his own little feeling of, you know, this is a big space and I might be a little afraid to go out in there. And he even says to Dr. Capshaw, it's hard for me to leave this place. Oh, do you say that to Malcolm? Well, he says to Vivian, it's hard for me to leave this all behind. There might be a, a degree of agoraphobia, maybe not to the extent that it cripples him from going outside. But, you know, there is this, this panic maybe within him that part of him might want to be stopped. But it also could be a heads up to, to Jessica, figure it out and let Malcolm know that I'm on I'm on the outs because Malcolm's not taking his calls and and calls had not even been going to voicemail. So the fact that he was able to leave this voicemail for Malcolm was was rare this episode. So it might have been a signal for Jessica to, to let Malcolm know that he's out. The voicemail that he leaves Malcolm at the end, is that what he intended to talk to Malcolm about? Or did he intend to originally leave his breadcrumbs of escape that he leaves for that he gives to Jessica was that what he was that originally intended for Malcolm and then he switched to Jessica because he couldn't get a hold of Malcolm. Yeah, I think it was ultimately entailed for Malcolm. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So, uh, speaking of Jessica, Jessica had a really fun uh, time in this episode, and we're not going to spend very much time on her at all because we're going to be talking to Bellamy about what went on with Jessica in this episode. I did want to ask you, what do you think of this secret bank key that she finds after she goes in the Never Ever room? Uh, is that going to play a role, do you think? Uh, put on your detective guessing hat. Is this going to play a role in uh, locating where Martin is headed to? I was very intrigued by this bank key. The fact that it exists and she was very poignant about saying that, you know, Martin didn't handle any of our finances. So why would he have this key? And I was like, this is like his murder room. So I think this might be something that he crafted for himself, maybe as like an emergency go bag. So maybe in he might have another key stashed in all of everything that he exists within his cell. Maybe the second key, because there's usually two keys, right? For any kind of like safety deposit box, there's usually two keys. That maybe this is like his version of a go bag and there's probably murder trophies in there. So I can't wait to see what's in here. But I feel like it's something that's going to help him with his escape. I feel like Martin's a very smart person and would have this very long game plan in existence. Like if, if his office was walled up and nobody knew about it until 22 years after the fact, then kudos to him. But I feel that he's smart enough that he would have laid himself out with enough supplies, enough cash to do what he's doing now in the event that he ever got caught. Am I crazy? What do you think? Uh, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think Jessica was thinking the same thing too, because she says, you know, is there money? Is there cash in there? Is there, you know, she was asking all these questions because like, I think she was thinking go bag in the same kind of way. It would be too much, I think, for him to have planned his escape from Claremont so far in advance that it it is going to be the location. Plus, I also think he is going to the house, uh, at least initially anyway, as his first stop on his escape tour, uh, 2021. And so um, I'm so happy that we have live events coming on again. We get to see the Mark escape tour <laughs> yeah so i don't know i don't know i don't know if the bank key is going to end up being a red herring 
or if it's going to be significant, but it was, it was tantalizing. It, for me, the most tantalizing part of it was it that it had the pictures of the young, of young Malcolm and young Ainsley on the keychain. That was by far the most interesting part of it. Not that there was a bank key, but the significance of Martin, the surgeon, this most respected cardiothoracic surgeon who also was a serial killer has a key with like two little kids faces on the keychain. It, it seemed out of character for who Martin is, which makes it significant to me. Not the key itself, but the keychain actually was significant to me. So we'll see. I, I, this is going to be a question for Bellamy, but I wanted your opinion too. Was Jessica meeting Dr. Capshaw everything you had hoped it would be? That was pretty spectacular. I, I mean, I'm trying to read Jessica's reaction. And even Dr. Capshaw's reaction, there was very much a um, being caught off guard. And I, I couldn't tell if Jessica was like weirdly jealous of the fact that Dr. Capshaw was A, so beautiful and B, so close to Martin. Dr. Capshaw, I think, was a little taken aback at how beautiful Jessica is. Maybe the fact that Martin called her his wife. It was a very interesting detail as well, uh, indicating maybe where his thoughts are. And Jessica was very quick to correct him. I think Jessica is. I think Jessica is first in in Martin's romantic heart forevermore. As much as he is able to love someone, I think he truly, truly loves Jessica. I really like the fact that these two got a chance to meet. I, I feel like the after conversation of uh, once once the dust settles on the escape and and Doctor Capshaw is released from her yeah. police custody as well that this is going to be a very interesting conversation between these two ladies well it'll be interesting to see if jessica has sympathy or empathy really with dr capshaw because she also had been taken in by the surgeon and duped by his charms for so many years while he was under his murderous spree it would be a little disingenuous of jessica to to look at dr capshaw like she's a, a stupid woman or or simple or something like that for being taken in but also you you could very easily see where Jessica going to put the blame and the onus on Martin escaping on Dr. Capshaw for allowing herself to be taken in. So it's going to be interesting to see which way it breaks. I'm, and I'm curious, I really want to pick Bellamy's brain about that too. So Yeah, that's a really good word that you use. It would be disingenuous of her to to be judgy at this moment. 20, 23 people were killed under Jessica's nose and she didn't know anything about it. So uh, Guys, we've been teasing it uh, so much. We were just talking about her. I think we need to get to our interview with Bellamy Young. Uh, though, stick around because as soon as we're done talking to her, we're going to come back. We have a couple of Gill items. We have a, an Adresis corner quickly, uh, some wrap up, and uh, talk about next week's episode a little bit. So hang on now. We're talking to Bellamy Young, Jessica Whitley, or Jessica Milton Whitley herself, and uh, it's coming up right now. Uh, joining us tonight on the Surgeon Files, we have Bellamy Young, Miss Jessica Milton Whitley herself. Uh, Bellamy, Ooh. thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing? My delight and honor. And you used my family name. I feel so genteel. I love when the Miltons. I love when the Miltons come up in the show. I'm like, yes, give me, the, give me that origin story. Give me that old money. Give me that Jessica spinoff. So exactly. Well, no, no, no. Let's all stay together as a family and do years and years of this. Like a but summer project. A summer project. Like a, a web summer series. Project. If I were a responsible actor, I would have written my biography by now. So there you go. But they did have props. Did make us. I guess set deck made us um, a Milton family tree that hung in the like the tea 
TV room at some point, and I was like, oh, I want a copy of that. I oh like goodness. that. I mean, I think you have to get a reproduction made of that for your house or something. Of you course. Know? Also, because anytime anything like that has to get made, they always use, like, all the crew's names. <laughs> like, every, sure. you know, yeah. that's, like, yeah. Alex person C, and that's Sasha Makeup, and, you know, like, whatever. And so it makes it extra special. Like a who's who of the cast and crew. Exactly, exactly. Sam Sclaver was my great uncle. That's weird. I didn't even realize. I have a lot of questions because when the Milton family home is shown and there's these pictures on the wall, you know, I'm like, who is that? Like, is that like great uncle Milton? Yeah. So, so a family tree just it it dovetails nicely with all of my other hobbies besides podcasting. (laughs) I love it so much because there are some creepy portraits in the Milton home, and one of them looks like Martin. One in the foyer looks like Martin. Oh my gosh, I love it. I'm gonna. I I will have to. I'm so drawn to the women. Like there's so many unhappy women. (laughs) I I just and they all look a little. There's one that looks particularly a lot like Lizzie Borden. So like that's a storyline I'm very interested in. But so now I have. I realize I've not been. So so you and I could have a spinoff podcast. Is really what you're saying? We could talk about the unhappy Milton women who somehow weirdly resemble serial killers. Okay, it writes itself, doesn't it? It writes itself. It's poetry. Let's be let's be honest. I mean, the stately Whitley Manor could easily have been a setting for a Scooby Doo episode. <laughs> if, if there were eyeballs following people around in the foyer at Whitley House, you like it would not surprise me. You know, 100%. if someone pulls a mask off of Catherine Zeta Jones and it turns out it turns out to be Michael Sheen in in a, in like a mask, like you know, I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids, literally. literally. Now, I know you guys just finished. Uh, filming season two but since it's your first time you're on the podcast with us can we yeah. hop on the way back in machine and talk about how you actually came to be cast as jessica to oh. take us way back to that time of your life that time of my life well it was two years ago when i was in los angeles and i didn't have a job and it was pilot season and i tested for something and didn't get it and then i was in the shower and my agent had called when i got i saw it on my phone when i got out and i was like oh because they never call unless it's really bad news really good news so i was like ah and you sort of like sit down you know i was in my robe and i sit down on the edge of my bed and like steal myself and call my agent back and he had this wonderful he's like we have an offer y'all it was an offer because it was very late and they really had to hire somebody and i'm sure a bunch of people had said no but i don't care because now i get to be jessica so all that matters is that they offered it to me my rep said what the project was and then they said michael sheen and i was like i'll do it (laughs) (laughs) and then they said wait 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 and they said in new york and i was like i'll do it (laughs) and they were like do you want to read the script and i was like sure but i'll do it like i was just so already in and then they sent me the script and from the jump like i could just hear her like from the first page that jessica appeared i could hear her voice i could see her walk i could just feel like her energy um i could i just i just could they did such a beautiful job writing a red-blooded human and i couldn't wait so it was a joy. The next time I did anything was Michael and I were at South By and uh, everybody else was here in New York for the table read. Were you at South By 2019? Yeah, yeah. Michael was there for Good Omens? Exactly. I was I there. Was there. Oh, I, inter- I, I, I knew we knew each other, Michael. 
I interviewed Michael when he was on the red carpet, him and Tenet and all those guys when they were down there for Good Omens. Well, I was there. I am an ambassador for CARE, the organization CARE, and I was there with them doing other kinds of work. But we and Michael and I just sat, you know, like thigh to thigh trying to share a laptop. And this was before, you know, we all lived through... All Zoom all the time. When you, when you could be close to each other without a mask. Before we could touch each other. BC before, before COVID. BC. BC. And before any of us my age understood Zoom. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there was me and Michael and his manager in a room, and you would have, I mean, three giraffes would have done a better job. I mean, we literally were just hopeless and helpless. Had to get someone from the hotel to make it all happen. But we uh, we did our table read that way. I'm sure you guys have covered there was a different Malcolm at that point. So we did not meet him. Uh, and then we came to New York to start shooting. So it was all very quick and all pretty wonderful. And it hasn't stopped being wonderful. Uh, this family of people, these scripts that come at us, even in the midst of a pandemic year, like this season, I'm grateful that we did it at all. Like it's, it's a miracle, frankly, to me. Everything they had to do in terms of COVID and compliance and safety and not one person spread anything to another person at all. And, you know, just we were all very safe, but we managed to make a season that's even better than last season, I think. So it's like crazy. I'm just joyful and grateful. It's been a great ride. I mean, so many shows suffer from the sophomore slump. And then I'm yeah. not saying this just because you're here. I'm not saying that just because of that. But this show really has kept the pressure up and it's kept the adrenaline going and the action and the storylines have been great. It's really kept moving in a, in a really tight way with half the the episodes really just as much power and punch i think yeah. as season one in a lot of ways so yeah i think so too i think so too and it's man this last little corridor of episodes ooh! i mean they play like the movements of a symphony like i'm gonna want to watch them all in a row many many times like the story is just ooh! oh fire uh, you're laying bait on your social media you're you're the things i uh, tape today and then you have like exploding head and fireworks and fire <laughs> like oh lord what is happening oh, and lord. you're gonna watch it and you're gonna be like whoa she really downplayed it Bellamy, when you're crafting a character say for prodigal son or any of the other roles that you've done do you spend a lot of time creating crafting a backstory for your for your lady of the moment I don't, unless it's a film. If it's a film, then you sort of have beginning, middle, end, and you know what's going to happen. But when you uh, get to tell a story on TV, you have to meet it more like life. You just do the best you can in the moment because, you know, the three of us, we don't know where our story is going. We don't know what we're going to have to do to get where we want to go. And so I found that... Like, for example, Tony Goldwyn and I, we tried to sit down and sort of write a common history when we started Scandal together. The more forward we went, the more it was just wrong. Do you know? You just find out the writers have other ideas and they don't have those ideas till they need to have those ideas. So I have found it not helpful and often to the point of counterproductive to invest in anything more than really rooting to the marrow on what the writers have told me so far so like for the pilot the shame of like the the absolute shock and horror of of finding out you're married to a serial killer the shame within a very 
tight-knit but uppity, judgy community, the fierce lionessness of having children to protect through it all, not just through the from the horror and the truth of what their father is, but also from the day-to-day on the streets of the Upper East Side. And, you know, they're, so they're just very immediate triage concerns that I tend to focus on instead of what my mother was like or something down there. Not that that isn't helpful. It's just I, it hasn't been helpful to me in TV jobs. So two years into this character development that you have for Jessica, how mm. much of Jessica is on the page versus you injecting your own spin into this role? So you kind of touched on that a little bit. I don't know even how to do that math. Um, I feel... <laughs> I, prom- I promise there's no math. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, because I always feel like... I'm not an actor who pitches, you know, this should happen, or she should say like this, except for grammar. If I'm playing someone uppity, I'm the daughter of an English teacher, and I will fix that grammar. But, oh, um, amen, girl. <laughs> but I, um, I always feel like I'm just, I'm like, you know, trying to bring alive what's there. And then, then they'll always be like, oh, my God, I can't believe what you did with, like, it shocked me that you, I'm like, shocked you? You wrote it. Like, what? You put it, th- what? My acting teacher in L.A. used to always say about, like, when you're auditioning and you're reading with a reader instead of another actor, like, you just have to listen with different ears. That always made so much sense to me. And I think maybe I just, at this point, read it with different eyes. Um, so it's a very instinctive response. It's not, I don't be, I never am like, you know, in this scene, I want to have a beat here. It's just... I don't know. They always feel like arias to me, little arias. And I, you know, can just feel the long notes and the quiet notes. And it's all very instinct. I love that. Prodigal Son, more than most and better than most, has really spread the wealth around in character development, Mm. uh, not just for Malcolm, but for Martin and for Jessica and for Ainsley and, you know, Gil and, and, and really everyone has gotten some level of character development. And Jessica is really interesting because over the course of the two seasons, you know, when the show begins, she's kind of an inaccessible social light with no cracks, no vulnerability, and also this overbearing but devoted mother. Now, you know, 30 hours in, she's become very complex. She has vulnerability. She has weak spots. We've seen the chinks in her armor, but she's also still a little bit of an overbearing mother, uh, (laughs) overbearing yet devoted mother. Do you see the evolution episode to episode? Is that something that you feel like, is she like a living, breathing person for you at this point? She really, really is. At the beginning, when he started going back to see his father, I mean, they just opened the story at the right time. We were also given such a gift with all the flashbacks we did first season because they provide such emotional context for everything. You know, like I can't look at Malcolm without seeing nine-year-old Malcolm. I just can't. And so there's a, a history that's alive and palpable that I don't have to do my actor homework with. It, I watched it happen. I watched how devastating it was for his father to be taken away and why it's made him grow up into the man that he is. And it's just there between us. It's just there between us all the time because they put it there so beautifully. When we started our series and he started going back to see his father, everything started changing. He started changing, so I need to change in response to that. Lord knows everything that's happened with Ainsley lately, my perfect daughter (laughs) that went off the rails at some point. It's just been wonderful because I think 
at the moment we met her, she thought she had everything sort of at an even keel, you know? That everything was going forward, the boat was balanced, everything looked pretty. The veneer, the veneer the was veneer shiny was and perfect, like, yeah. And it would take her 20 years to get there because it was horrifying in 1998. But then it started to, he started to rock the boat, you guys. He started to rock the boat. And, and it's been her fight to get balanced, to make things pretty again, and then to kind of think, I don't give a shit. I'm just going to try and get through the stage, you know, like really. Yeah. Uh, It's been, it's been great. I love it. And then to start meeting, like to meet Birdie or like, you know, (laughs) to see things start happening, you know, to fill in the blanks. That was some of the best casting I've seen in a long time for family Ah! members. Jessica and Birdie together were quite the pair. Quite the pair. (laughs) I hope we get to see her more. I know. She's a dream. Truly, truly, truly a dream. But we also should pause and give thanks to Mark Sachs because Mark Sachs, man, he's our casting director and what the gifts he has given us over the past two years are breathtaking. I mean, certainly Catherine right now, what a elevating force to add to any television show. A beautiful, elegant, Oscar-winning, you know, just incredible. Alan, to have had Alan even for a couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. Robert Joy in the episode, you know, in episode 10 that we're here to talk about. Like, we've just had, just, we had John Cullum. We've had, just had beautiful, beautiful actors. So, I feel so grateful. The show has done also a really good job of using these New York people also. Yeah. You know, like, I think of Alan Cumming, I, I, I know he's British, but I think of him as a New York guy. You know, I'm a big oh, yeah. fan. And so I think of him as a theater guy. And, and so I think the show has just done such a great job of accessing those talents that are available on this coast exactly exactly since you brought it up tonight's episode actually has jessica making one of her classic appearances at claremont and it's also the first time jessica comes face to face with Catherine zeta jones's vivian capshaw yeah tell us about shooting with her had you met her before what was that like uh that day oh she was wonderful when she started you know so much of her work initially was just with martin uh, michael they're all the same letter it's very difficult sometimes you feel like it's very very hard your own grandmother. Oh, Martin. Oh, Malcolm. Oh, Michael. Which one are you? Which one are you? My sister, my mother. She was very gracious and called everyone down to stage. And we all sort of met her at once. And she's lovely. She's literally equal parts of 40s movie star icon and dock worker. Like she's literally, it's amazing. She's Am I there? Are you there? Yeah. Oh, no, we're here. We're just listening. We're just basking in your glow. Oh, my goodness. We're just taking, we're taking it all in. We're taking it all in. I was at 5%, so I've just plugged in and I thought I'd cut you off. And so now I'm relieved. Anyway, (laughs) she is perfection and she's so good to work with. Always like super prepared, has great ideas, very giving on the day. So it's been a delight. But yes, so we had met and done, because we've shot out of sequence a lot. This season in particular, we've shot multiple episodes episodes at once so i had done a lot of work with Catherine before i shot the scene in which i meet her so yeah yeah and believe me by the end we get real close so stay tuned i'm glad i'm glad i'm glad you opened up because we're definitely going to ask you about that later so (laughs) (laughs) we're sitting here salivating i know i know my my, my fingers are twiddling together in an evil way i mean i mean i mean as thrilling as tonight's episode is we have a long view of this show uh we we want to take a step back to last week and that dance with gil in the garage (laughs) 
Um, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that Mike's been singing Slave to Love ever since it featured heavily in our own podcast. But um, (sighs) after being apart from each other for most of this season, what is Jessica thinking here in this scene? Is she willing to commit to a relationship with Gil, even acknowledging this this quote unquote Whitley curse? Well, gosh, there is so much to say. First of all, a lot of the being away this season is COVID, right? So there's other intentions and then there's COVID and COVID wins. Also, well, I'll tell you that last, but uh, also in the context of last episode, it came in much over time because it was a wonderful script and we shot it all and, and that's how life works. And so there was this great scene that sort of preceded what, got into well made it in the edit before the dance like there's a little back and forth that was really important and sweet and supportive and edifying before the beer drink before the thing so it sort of came out of nowhere in the episode and otherwise really like it was such a good episode but it was very like had a beat and and then this was sort of other and then we got back in the beat but y'all I got to make an 80s romance film with an 80s star. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like an 80s icon. It was epic. I I mean, we just go there and he was Lou. And I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I know what this is. And to Slave to Love, Lou, when he gets the episodes, he reads them out loud to Yvonne, his wonderful wife. And he was reading this one out loud. He read the scene. And without missing a beat, Yvonne said, Slave to Love. And he was like, what? And she said, you should dance to Slave to Love. And he was like, huh. And he sort of looked it up and he looked at the lyrics. And he was like, oh, my God, it's their song. And so he like pitched it to Chris and Sam. And it's all because of Yvonne. They got the rights and that's how it happened. I've never wanted to be a beer bottle more. Than I did in that scene. I, forget about hands across America. You two together are like swoon across America. Uh, I, I think that goes into a highlight Bunny. reel. So, <laughs> thanks, Bunny. Thanks, Bunny. We loved it. We, <laughs> loved, we were swaying we, with you. It was amazing. We looked so forward to it. Nermit shot it so pretty in that you know with the backlit with the, in the big old garage and it was freezing, but it was wonderful. It was great. You have so many different relationships on the show, and a lot of your scenes aren't group scenes. You have a lot of one-on-one scenes. It's you and Malcolm, you and Ainsley, you and Gil, you and Martin. Uh, mm-hmm. For whatever reason, whereas, you know, JT and Danny and Gil, they tend to be in group scenes. Yeah. But your relationship and your chemistry with everyone is so different. Jessica is so different, depending on who she's talking to. Do you Do you ever find it hard to shift into mode? Or at this point, it's this is, all right, this is Jessica with Gil versus this is Jessica with Martin because they're completely different emotional setups for Jessica. Yes, but it's all, the history's there, you know? I mean, it really is. It's, uh, she could never be the way she is to Martin with Gil. I mean, she just couldn't. She couldn't. She wouldn't. Why would she, you know? Like, he's never done the things to her that Martin has. And, you know, with Malcolm, there's so much guilt and shame and, you know, impulse to save, but, you know, that you're, he's grown and you have to step back and, you know, oh, it's so fraught. It's almost so very specific, but that's because it's good writing, you know? So often, Lord knows, I've played plenty of mothers, and so often mother is such a generic function in the story, but Jessica is in no way generic. So she lives and breathes and she gets to like we all do, be a different person with all the different people we meet because who we are 
in relationship is always the sum of, you know, whoever's in the room. Speaking of uh, Jessica and her different relationships, we were talking about when we were recording the main part of the podcast episode for tonight's episode, we were talking about what the reaction is for Jessica seeing Capshaw so close to Martin when she enters the cell. And yes, she is done with Martin. She detests Martin in so many ways, but there's love there. There's undeniable, I think, love between the two of them in some very locked away area. So I, we were curious if Jessica has like a jealousy bone that twitches, even if it's that's, involuntary that's uh, so when, she's, when she sees them kind of at that uh, so close together at that point. Is, is there is there anything to be read in there too or is she's just oblivious to that kind of thing when it comes to Martin? Oh no, not oblivious by any measure. No, no, no. No, no, no. I think Jessica lives her life on the defense. So scrutiny is her like modus operandi, right? It's whenever she's with Martin. I think the word you're looking for instead of love is history. She, they oh, have yes, history, well, yes. That's right? true. That's true. And, like, she knows how he breathes when he sleeps. She knows how he acts when he's sick. You know, she's like, she knows his shit up one side and down the other. And she knows when he's lying, which makes her such a fun. When I watch as an audience member, it makes it so fun to see because she's the only one to be like, well, no. Even though she had no idea he was a killer, but you know, like as a human being trying to get through the day, like she can tell when he's on the up and up and when he's not. The scenes I enjoy, it's when their like chemistry comes back out. Like I think mm-hmm. they are. They have some crazy chemistry still. I do think. That. Oh yeah, no, yeah. It's 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 animalistic. Yeah, uh, kind right? of a, You know, a little bit. Yeah. And it yeah. helps you understand how that all happened in the first place, and the charisma. He, I mean. Michael himself is such a madly charismatic human, but like in this story, it helps you understand, you know, when she saw him across the room in his navy suit and his brown shoes, how she would look at him <laughs> twice, you know? We talk about all, we talk about all the time. Is Michael Sheen, is Martin being like adorable, so adorable here because Michael Sheen is adorable and charismatic? Or is he being Martin like the sociopath who just knows how to manipulate people? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> we may never know. <laughs> Also, people should go look at Michael Sheen's basement. I'm not saying anything. (laughs) He does spend a lot of time focused on serial killers. (laughs) But no, what I was going to say is that I feel like Jessica's always thinking, what is he about to do? Like, what is he up to? So I feel like when she walks in and she sees this absurdly beautiful doctor in the room with him, you know, I don't think her first impulse is, you know, why is he looking at her? I think the first impulse is, what is he up to? Like, what is happening here? How do I need to handle it? What am I going to have to, like, what pieces am I going to have to pick up? How are my kids going to be involved? Like, I really do think that's with everything her first instinct with him nowadays. Suspicious. Yeah, Yeah. suspicion. And that's one thing I do have to say that we've been pretty consistent about is that giving props to Jessica as the true mama bear. Like everything she does, even though her children are grown, it's like, how is this going to affect my kids and how do I protect them? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and bless her, you know. She may be 14 sheets to the wind, but she will still do her best to keep her kids safe. (laughs) You know, the mommy juice has has to happen sometimes. (laughs) Let me ask you about the scene where Jessica impales Daryl in the uh, the ear with her shoe. (laughs) It's such a fun sentence to say. Oh my God. Wait, wait till you hear my next one. (laughs) 
I'm ready. Okay, so I just want to know uh, what what your thoughts are about the scene where Jessica impales Daryl, and she's trying to ascertain what's going on, and she she comes across this guy with a shank and Willie coming at her. <laughs> I mean, when I read it, I didn't know anything until like, we got the scripts. When I read it, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like so crazy. But then, you know, Jessica does like to throw a heel. We, we hit the TV last yeah, year. Yeah, the poor and, TV. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And she is definitely always, we always, uh, Katie Riley, who is our incredible wardrobe designer, who I hope you've spent time with and talked to, because she's a genius and does most of our work for us. But, you know, we always talk about particularly when Jessica's going to Claremont, we put her armor on, like the jewelry's not notched up a bit. And oh, the, yeah, she's to the nines every you time. You know, you always want to look good when you see your ex, but, like, this is aggressively, you know. So we like to joke she has a killer, killer fashion instinct. But the, we went, I read the script for this episode and then had a fitting, like, two days later, and she had found these Tom Ford shoes, <gasps> which <Stop>! are <laughs> clearly... They are clearly not made for walking. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Mike, I called this. <laughs> you, you, did, you did call them being Tom Ford shoes. I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Oh, yes. I mean, so that, that was my question for anyone shopping for stabby shoes. What kind of stiletto heels would they be? And you answered it. Tom Ford. <laughs> and I called it. You're going to have to have someone carry you, but you're going to look good and you can defend yourself. <laughs> That is fantastic. It's just really funny, though, because Gil, Gil's last advice to her before he hangs up is, you know, find something to protect yourself, to arm yourself with, and stay safe. And then we yep. cut to her holding both shoes in her exactly. hand. Exactly. But look at her. Was she wrong? No. Those no. shoes she, are... She knows how to wield a shoe. She's proven it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then our special effects guys, like... They made this uh, sort of out of a like a stronger foam, but not but still not anything would hurt you. A shoe that looked exactly the same, like blew my mind. And that's what I hit poor Sar with. That's what I that's what I hit him with. And he <laughs> sold it so he's such a good actor. And then Ben, our our um, special effects guy made this appliance that fit sort of half over the head, all the way over the ear, and had another shoe coming out of it so that you know, it took like 45 minutes for them to apply that. And then that's what Sara really could like whip around with and freak out. And I was freaking out. And it, it was amazing. And can I tell you that the, whoever does the sound effects? Yes, that's what I was inhaling to say. Yeah. Go for it. Go for it. No, I was just going to say, who, I just watched it last night. And whoever put that sound effect in there, I screamed. Oh, like, my God. Was, my stomach churned. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. So good. I if I didn't want to turn everyone's stomach, I would have played that just the squish sound just now. But yeah, it was yeah, just I can hear it in my head and it's making me crinkle my nose. So <laughs> I know, I know. It was crazy. But we also in that episode had some very special guest stars. If you noticed, I know I looked forward to it for like two months. It was rat day. The rat oh <laughs> yes, yes. Not a fan of the rats. No. Oh, I love them. I looked forward to it forever. I, got, I had to act like I was afraid, but I got to like hold them and kiss them and one was pregnant. Catherine, not a fan of rats. They had to be called jelly beans. They could not be referred to as rats in the presence. And oh, that's she just, they had to be even the fake ones they had to cover with little like she was not down. I was like, can I hold one? Can I can I pet them? They're oh like, sure, Lord. lady. Sure. Is that like a lifetime thing? Like you didn't learn anything from the bubonic plague? You, you, <laughs> you, you... 
Like you, know, you and Indiana New Jones are good with the rats. It's a New York thing. That's true. It's, it's true. a New York thing. It's it always is. good luck when you see a rat in the subway. I'm like, that's hey, true. friend. Hey, friend. I mean, the, the rats read like the paper in the subway that's in New York. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Can you believe you these said, fucking myths? Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a longtime suffering Mets fan. So, oh, God, know. honey, I'm sorry. I know, I know. <laughs> no one is more sorry than me. <laughs> I'm also a Jet fan, so I pretty much suffer oh, all, yes. all year round. Wow, yes. Uh, so we've been talking about, and we've been wondering, and, and we're happy to have you here, because we want to ask Jessica going into the Surgeon Files, which, what a shout out for our podcast on the show last week. We were very happy to hear the <laughs> exactly. Surgeon Files named. Uh, we think this is a colossal bad idea. <laughs> you because, think? Yeah, be, yeah. Because, because it seems like a Pandora's box of bad karma. I mean, forget the PTSD memory orgy that's going to open up, <laughs> but I feel like nothing good can come from this. Is, is this going to be something that we get to see more of now i mean yes now we have to deal with martin having escaped but this idea of jessica writing a book seems like it is destined to bring up bad things without too many spoilers is is, is that a good guess is that is that uh, something that's going to be explored a little bit more um what i can say is that on a personal tip Nothing has been more helpful than like the stuff in my life that I've been too afraid of. I've shut away, I've repressed, like whatever. When I got to a safe place to like, you know, go to therapy and look back on that and heal it, bring it in the sun, let go of the shame, you know, to walk with freedom, all of that. Nothing could be more important as a human to do, right? So that you can, you know, integrate all of yourself and walk without any sort of shame through your life. Jessica's life is tethered to a sociopathic serial killer. <laughs> so like her looking into her life has like crazy seismic implications possibly for her, for him, for are there other victims? Like, is there a whole other family? Like what is gonna, what is she gonna, I don't know. So. And now she's gone to the jailhouse and, like, shook this little carrot of a key in his face. And now he's free. And, like, just no good can come from it. No good can come from it. Like, don't poke the bear. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it, it is a recipe for disaster. If this was a movie in the theater, I would be throwing popcorn at the screen and yelling <laughs> at, at exactly. Jessica. Like, don't do it. Don't go in there. It's called the Never Ever Room. Don't go in the basement. Yes. yes. It's a Never Ever Room for a reason. <laughs> yeah. it's, not a, it's not a sometimes room. It's a Never Ever Room. <laughs> It's like, a, oh, if you really have to, room. No, no, no. That's very funny. That's very funny. How are you most like Jessica and how are you most different from her? Oh, gosh. Thanks for asking that. Um, let's You're see. Welcome. No math involved. You don't have to show your work. <laughs> no, no, no math. Wait, no I'm counting. If you could see me, I'm patting my foot so I can figure it out. Um, <laughs> Uh, how am I, I'm, I'm super loyal, super loyal. Like, I feel like Jessica is, can be a ride or die. It's just like very few people make that list, i.e. Malcolm and Ainsley. And Gil, um, but she'll still, she'll still a little white fibby to Gil every once in a while. But, um, definitely loyal. I, you know, I'm not a mom, so I don't. I feel that maybe where I am. Wait, you're a dog mom. Give I yourself, am. Give yourself I, the I credit. Am. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And cats. I have two of those too. Yeah. Staring, literally, one of them is staring at me. Right, right if now. you're responsible, if you're responsible for keeping things alive, you're a mom. 
Oh, that's nice. I feel better then. But I was going to say, I don't, you know, I don't know what it's like to, I feel like my friends with children, it's like your heart is external now and walks around freely in Manhattan or, you know, wherever you live. Like, it's a different sort of vulnerability. And so that I really have to keep track of and watch and make sure it's always there. So it's, it's in the writing and it's beautiful, but that's, that's the part I really try and stay vigilant about. It feels authentic to me. It really does. Thank you. Thank you. It's easy to love. It's easy to love my Halston and my <laughs> sweet, sweet Tommy. I mean, just randomly, I watched the pilot last night and you talk just because, you know, just in prepping for the show, sometimes it's good to go back to yeah. the beginning and understand like the foundational roots. And you talk about Ainsley being my perfect daughter. And I was just like, Oh my God. How You're far like, that girl, seed. what you don't know. <laughs> like how far that apple has bounced yeah. from that tree. Oh, bounced and rolled. <laughs> Nicholas Endicott strong disagrees on his, uh, <laughs> on his review. Uh, he would shake his head, but can't. Oh, but he can't. Oh, that was, that was <laughs> dark. Barbaric. <laughs> I told you it's not a podcast unless he sings. We had the biggest laugh when we saw that in the uh, in the in the premiere of the season. I mean, the, come on! When I read it, I was like guffawing. It was just so on brand. It was so Jessica, yes. unbelievable. It was really fantastic. I'm a big scandal fan, and I'm a big big Melly Grant fan. I was a Melly Grant stan the entire time. And I, I see a lot of through lines between Melly and her relationship with Fitz, Jessica and her relationship with Martin, and just generally the men in their lives and the yes. way they have to deal with them. Do you ever think about Melly when you're prepping for a Jessica scene? Oh, I haven't. I don't. No, I don't. That's a good, that's what a lovely question because she was, she is so indelible. And, um, well, they're, because they're, they're both very strong women who were, kind of always being kicked down by men or being tried to be held down by men in their life or held back by men in their life and they kind of always persevered over them. I know, but I do think that it's a, a more common story. Yeah, well, think, that's you know, true, like, for sure. I think about women, I think about women in general, but I don't necessarily think about Melly. I think that's a, it's a, you know, more common than you think. And I don't, it's not man bashing in any way. No, just, no, it is, it is just the reality of the situation. We are just about out of time. I have one more question for you, if, if you wouldn't mind. I love it. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, the show finished filming last week. Uh, yeah. There were some great photos from the cast, you on your Instagram and, and Twitter and Keiko uh, was putting stuff up on her social media about shooting from the final day. As we wait for the season three renewal news, can you take yes. us behind the scenes a little bit? Tell us some stories or feelings from shooting the final season two episodes, what the feeling on the set was? Oh my goodness. Well, uh, the feeling on the set was come on already. <laughs> like we really <laughs> we love these jobs in the middle of the hardest year that, you know, many of us have known and that is a, a privileged statement. We still managed to deliver something we're really really proud of. So like please just say yes, you can keep telling the story. Also because we found such a wonderful home. Uh, with our prodigies and globally, you know, we just have such a wonderful family of people that nobody's ready to give up yet. So I think that 
as we were, you know, ticking off down to the last scene, the last setup, the martini of the season, I think we were all just like, <laughs> how soon can we be back here? Because we love this and we want to, we just want to keep on. So everybody's so optimistic and, and hoping too that when we get back, that things can be a little can start to normalize you know we miss as actors we miss the time when you're just sitting together in your cast chairs while they're lighting and you the camaraderie or the rehearsal lord knows if you want to be professional about it but um (laughs) you know our time with our crew thank heavens our wonderful crew like 99 percent of them came back from season one so we know who's under all those masks and face shields and glasses, you know, like it's been a, a distanced season, but thank God we all already loved each other so deeply. So, um, I was looking at your Instagram photos and everyone was masked up. So it was just yeah. a bunch of eyeballs, like, you know, people like hugging each other and eyeballs like at the camera. I was like, I assume that I assume Bellamy knew who all these people were, you know? Yes, yes, yes. You could, you could have a serial killer under there. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Michael Sheen would have sniffed them out. Exactly. Or, or beat them to it. I don't know, Michael. It's hard to say. Waggly, wagging your finger. Like, who are you? What are you doing here? I don't recognize you. What's your body count? <laughs> we, we, you know, we talked to Michael Potts a few weeks ago uh, for his, yes. his arc on the show, and we were talking to him as a guest star coming into a show during COVID times. What that was like, and he mm. was talking about uh, about the lack of uh, ability to be close to each other like you normally would, and that bonding that happens when you come in. And so, it's been great that you guys have been able to make the show at such a high level. But I, I could see definitely where the lack of time together, closeness together would take its toll. Yeah. And you just have to run back to your little room and, you know, they're red, red, yellow, red, orange, yellow, purple zones. And, you know, actors and crew that has to be in the room when we're shooting, that's red zone. And you're not allowed to see anybody else. So, you know, I never got to go to the production office this year and see ZZ or, you know, like just see anybody. So it was just odd that way. So I, I hope we get many more years but, you know, I'll look forward to some of those years being what, you know, what I remember. And how great is Michael Potts? We did um, mm. a thing called Randy Newman wrote a Faust and uh, David Mamet did the book. Oh, sure. yep. mm-hmm. We did that. We, we were in that together. I haven't seen him since then and I didn't get to see him now. So there you go. Uh, I, we loved him. Yeah, yeah, we were big fans. Of, I mean, again, I'm a big theater guy. And I, if you think we didn't sing some Book of Mormon when we were on with him, <laughs> you would be wrong, you know. I awesome. love it. I, I could talk to you literally for three more hours about all the stuff that you're doing. <laughs> Where can people follow you on social media to keep up with you on Twitter, Instagram? Bellamy Young. It's a weird enough name. It's mine. It's everywhere. <laughs> Bellaby, you have been an absolute joy and everything that we had been wanting to have you on. And you were fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today. Ah, it's such a good podcast. Thanks so much, you guys. And I love you to pieces. And here's to many, many more. Here's to many, many more. We'll have you back on the season three premiere. So, <laughs> All right. All right. Bellamy, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Be well, stay safe. You and have too. A great you too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.
All right, guys, I just wanted to say a big thank you to Bellamy. She was fantastic. I really enjoyed all of her insight, and she was so valuable with her time and so gracious. And uh, she really pulled back the curtain on on Jessica and, and her time on the show, too, up to this point. And fingers crossed for season three. And again, to everyone at Fox, you guys have been so great in working with us on guests all season long. Sheila, I want to talk to you about Gil, because I know you were probably extremely happy to see Gil's coronet, Dodge coronet back in action tonight. Uh, what did you think of Danny getting behind the wheels of it by the end of the episode? First of all, I, I love his car so much. And anytime that they, they wreck an old car in any scene, I get a little like heart sick. But the fact that Danny, you know, took this car out after there was a no Whitley rule uh, around his car to, to save. The and no Tarmel. And, and, and no, tar- yes. about no Tarmel. There was just a no, no Powell rule. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, um, so now it's going to be, I think, a, like a, a blanket. Nobody drives this car but me because you all decide to wreck it, and there's only but so many parts for like a, I think it's like a '68 or '69 car. Yeah, so I mean, it paid off really well that Danny was the only one allowed to do it because she was able to save Malcolm and Gerald in, in quite spectacular fashion. So, and as far as things that have happened to the car, a killer being hit by that massive front end is going to do a lot less damage than other things that have happened to it. it so, and it didn't really get that much damage. No, I mean, listen, I've hit a couple of deer in my time with much less muscle cars than uh, his coronet. Gotten a couple of things here and there, but you'd be surprised how little damage actually happens on a car if you hit it just right. So. <laughs> There may be there may be some uh, some hair or something in the grill that he has to take out. But. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but maybe a little like scratch of a neck tattoo or something. But but I was happy to see Gil make the choice now to go to Jessica's aid when she called him from Claremont. But were you surprised that he didn't drill down further into Malcolm's? How do you know about my delusions faux pas that happened here? Uh, so I was so taken back by that. Nothing more than a raised eyebrow. Gil, come on! He just admitted to having delusions to having hallucinations. You're not going to follow up on that. You have Danny last week. You, you're getting her to go to go snip around him and you just let that go. This is part of this inconsistent father figure, Gil, that we've been having all season. You know, it really ignoring Malcolm and his personal, really ignoring Malcolm in a personal way all season. But then all of a sudden last week coming back and, and trying to do the father figure thing again. And then he lets this slide tonight. I, I don't know where I don't know where Gil's head is with Malcolm. I'm really I'm really thrown by it and I think it's on purpose. I don't think it's I don't think it's bad writing. I don't th- I think it's the intent for it to be ambiguous that Gil himself is in this in-between state in how he feels about Malcolm now and and how close he should let himself get. You know, the Whitleys are cursed and Malcolm more than most, you know, or more than well, most of them feel it's driving me crazy though. I can't believe he just let that slide. Uh let that slip. How about you. you know, because Gil's the one who brought up the delusions and Malcolm kind of like leaned into it was like, oh, wait, I thought you said something different. So he's trying to like gloss over it. But Gil is the one that said it. So I was really surprised that, yeah, there was nothing more than like this raised eyebrow, like, oh, OK, OK, you are having them. So I don't know why Gil is doing this weird dance, because like it felt like last episode that he was kind of back, that he was stepping into this father figure role again, that he was concerned about Malcolm, even though he was using Danny kind of like a subterfuge kind of a way to get the information on Malcolm or just to you know voice that concern. But I was surprised that it didn't go past that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why this is happening, but, you know, Gil is definitely moving onto the side of the Whitleys, but the fact that this was let go is just a little bit puzzling to me. 
we have a little bit of an Adresis corner tonight. What did you think of uh, her bringing up Japandi style at the crime scene? Given the decor of her apartment that we got to see last week, finally, did uh, Japandi uh, ring true to you? came as a bit of a surprise to me that she would be envious of the aesthetic of the Japandi style, only because it's you know, like it's a combination of the elements of simplicity with intentionality. There's a degree of minimalism, some natural elements. Whereas Idris's apartment to me was more of a reflection of her brain. It was eclectic. It was colorful. It was busy. I, I, I mean, I think there's a part of Idrisa that maybe she could appreciate an aesthetic without embracing it herself. Oh, she was coveting the mm. style tonight, I think. That's true. That's true. And for people who don't know, Japandi is a reference to uh, a merger. It's a, it's a design trend merging Japanese and Scandinavian. Scandinavian uh, design aesthetics together. Interestingly enough, and coincidentally enough, we recently did an international design episode on decorating the set from Hollywood to your home with Beth Kushnick, the podcast that Caroline hosts with set decorator for 37 years, Beth Kushnick, and Japandi style was one of the topics that they came up on. So if you were interested in learning more about this design aesthetic and learning more about uh, current international design trends, interior design trends, Go look up the, I think it was three episodes ago, four episodes ago, of uh, Decorating a Set from Hollywood to Your Home, which I am a producer on that show. So uh, I was I was really happy to understand what that reference was without having to look it up. So That's pretty awesome dovetailing. That's great. That's it. Pod Clubhouse, we, we satisfy all of your needs here. No mention of Blaze tonight. Do you think we're going to hear more about him? I, I don't think we're going to see him, but do you think we're going to hear more about him before the end of the season? I think there's always an opportunity for Adresa to do a little bit of a name drop. Especially if uh, her light bondage phase in Hoboken, you know, needs some practicing. So I think that we might get a name drop. She's going to get that pleather jacket of workout. Maybe. But I have one one observation for you. And I don't know if this is significant or not. And you can tell me what your take is on it. When the team is examining the crime scene early on and Malcolm is looking at Adresa and Gil through the stairs, the stairs to me resemble jail bars. So I don't know if that's significant. So he's looking at Adresa through the jails, you know, the jail bars, the team of the staircase, which is what looked like to me. It's an interesting shot that they definitely set up there. And guys, go back and take a look at it. it it's for sure there. And the show, it's not beyond the show to foreshadow like that, or, or at least set the the, the conversation uh, aflame. And Lord knows Malcolm has done enough things to land him in jail. So I don't know. I don't know. Man, that would probably put a real damper on his relationship with Danny being arrested. Probably. So. Yeah. Especially if she's the one to do it. Uh, well, yeah, you know, but who knows? She's a complicated woman herself, though. I mean, there's a world where Danny and Gil arrest Malcolm and, yes, also defend him, too. <laughs> you know, yes, I, exactly. the, I think they both have an appreciation to different extents because they've been in his life at different lengths. I think both of them, though, appreciate the damage and trauma that has been put upon Malcolm by Martin and by his familial uh, existence and circumstances. So something tells me Gil and Danny, even if they have to arrest Malcolm, are going to have a bit of a long rope in being willing to forgive him or at least work, work with him. They'll be they'll arrest him, but be conflicted about it. <laughs> All right, guys, that brings us to the end of discussion of episode 210, Exit Strategy. Next week's episode, episode 211, the, the first of the final three hours of season two, is called You Can Run. Interesting. Spoiler warnings here. If you're someone who doesn't want to hear, if you consider uh, the episode, the official episode description, a spoiler, then I'll say goodnight to you now and thank you for listening. But and for everyone next week and see you next week. But for everyone else, here is the description warning for next week's episode. You can run. 
After a terrifying incident at Claremont, Malcolm is in a race against time to track down multiple killers. The NYPD realizes someone close to home might be the key to finding them. Finding them meaning finding the multiple killers. Dun, dun, dun. Now, is the person close to home Malcolm? Jessica? Ainsley? Who could be the person close to home that they zero in on to try and track down Friar Pete, Hector, and Martin, the Surgeon Whitley? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm like struggling to come up with something good to, to do this. Maybe it's Gil. I don't know. I feel like Gil has like enough of a, a storied past that he might have some clue as to, as to this. I have nothing else to base it on other than the fact that he's just the longest serving member on this show. I don't know. I don't know. Well, tune in to find out and we'll be talking about it next week. So guys, thank you so much to Bellamy Young. Thank you guys for listening. If you could, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to The Surgeon's Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you could listen to podcasts uh, or you could go to podclubhouse.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a comment there. Please leave us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. If you don't, well, we're going to have to take you up to the never ever room and maybe have a PTSD memory orgy with you. So (laughs) don't make us do that, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.